Well, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, each is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. Prophecy is a gift that God wants exercised in his church, so says Romans 12, verse 6. Why, in the midst of a pandemic, are we stopping to talk about prophecy? Well, I, for one, have kind of been longing for some normalcy in my life, so getting back to our series in the book of Acts is just kind of what I need, but also because the church of Jesus depends on prophecy. I don't know if you've thought about that or not, but prophecy forms the solid rock on which our hope stands. We're talking about our hope in the midst of a pandemic and what is it all based on? And the truth is it's based on scripture, on prophecy. I love prophecy. I also love the prophets of God. Did you know that God placed a premium on the protection of his prophets? It says in Psalm 105 verse 15, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Yet, Unrighteous men have always attacked the prophets of God. Why? To try to shut them up. Now, this is Palm Sunday. We don't exactly have palms displayed today. And without everybody here, it doesn't have that same kind of feel to it anyway. But you remember what the Lord Jesus lamented about Jerusalem concerning prophets on Palm Sunday. Matthew 23, 37 says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Why did God keep sending prophets to Israel even though evil men abused them? Well, because God uses prophecy to bless his people. God uses prophecy to bless Israel and to bless the church. Like in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 7, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly. That's a prophecy. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. He meant the book of Revelation. Do you have a little extra time these days at home? Do you want a blessing? That just finished saying if you sit down and read the entire book of Revelation, you're going to get a blessing. The gift of prophecy is vital to the church of Jesus because it brings the very words of God to believers, and it reveals the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 19.10, it says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, the Holy Spirit takes his own words and then opens up our understanding of God through prophecy. The Bible that we preach from is a prophetic book through and through. It was written by the true prophets of Yahweh. Both the nation of Israel and the church of Jesus Christ are founded on the message of the prophets. We should be enthusiastic about the gift of prophecy and what it does for the church. It's great to learn about prophecy. I fault nobody for having a little extra zeal in their heart for prophetic pronouncements. However, I also have to say this that it is important to discern the difference between true and false prophecy. Would you agree? There is a world of difference between God's pronouncements and Satan's crafty counterfeits, and sometimes they look the same. 
1 John chapter 4 and verse 1 warns about this. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Why should we do that? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. False prophets bring false prophecies. In fact, Jesus warned about the end times in Matthew 7, 22 to 23. That's kind of at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. A very severe warning if you think about it. He said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Oh yes, Satan will send people even to prophesy in the name of Jesus to cast out demons and even do miracles in Jesus Christ and his judgment will reject them. Anyone who dares speak for God better get it right. Better hit the bullseye. Prophecy is that important. Now prophecy does not tell us everything that we wish we wanted to know. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 9 says, For we know in part... And we prophesy in part. But what it does tell us is rock solid. And you and I can base our lives on it. Right now, we're seeing that the value of things like Lysol and uh, disinfectant wipes and masks have all soared. Listen, brothers, there's no greater commodity in the world than the words of the living God whose words actually bring everlasting life to us when we believe. Words that come out of the mouth of God are to be treated with the highest honor and the greatest care. Why? Because they come from the very mind of the Holy Spirit who cannot err and he never lies. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. So today... God requires of us a combination of enthusiasm for what prophecy brings to the church along with discernment about what it actually is as we return to the book of Acts and we look at one solid example of how God used one prophet to aid the church, interestingly, in a time of natural disaster. The text is Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Acts 11, 27 through 30. It says this, now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders, the elders back in Jerusalem. Great connectivity that happens now between the mother Jerusalem church and this new Gentile church in Antioch. And that's really what's happening in the flow of thought in the book of Acts. We've seen the word of God going out from Jerusalem, just as Jesus said, that it would go out of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the world. That is happening. Jesus' prophecy is coming true. We're picking up on the narrative, and there's this burgeoning new Gentile church in a very large ancient city called Antioch. And all of this attention is kind of moving away from the, the church Uh, that was mostly dominated by the Jews in Jerusalem to the church that is dominated by Gentile believers in Antioch. 
If you look back in the verses 19 through 26, we see that Barnabas and Saul were already at this new church. They believed they needed to be there as leaders to teach the church, grounded in doctrine, make sure they had proper doctrine, and they were helping that church to grow. They were getting behind the evangelism that was already happening. They were founding it in good doctrine. And now we see another group of people also coming to this church to help it. We see one church helping another. We see the church universal working together. And these are Jewish prophets, but they're Jewish prophets inside the church of Jesus. So they're saved. They're saved. They're part of the body of Christ. And they've come to Antioch to serve this church with their gift of prophecy. So from this one example, we're going to see how prophecy benefits the church, how prophecy helped this church. Our outline today is to look at four actions, four actions that reveal how God used the New Testament prophets. Now, we're talking about the New Testament prophets, not the Old Testament prophets, although there's obvious similarities. Four actions. Here we go. First action. Prophets functioned as leaders for the church. Prophets functioned as leaders for the church or inside the church. That's really verse 27. It says, now, at this time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and picking up on their role of speaking and leadership. Luke writes that there was this group of prophets. They did travel down. Down means down in elevation to Antioch and that this occurred during the reign of Claudius as Caesar, which was A.D. 41 through A.D. 54. Now, that's an historical note, and there are extra-biblical writers that attest to a number of famines that happened during Claudius's reign. The expositor's commentary, for example, notes that Josephus, the the uh, Jewish historian tells of a particularly severe famine that happened in the land of Palestine about A.D. 45 through A.D. 47. There's Luke again being careful to give attention to historic detail and dating. That does not surprise us. Those of us who have been going through the book of Acts, we know many times we've seen how accurate the book of Acts is geographically, historically. Um, it, is, um, it is truthful in all that it asserts. Now, in Greek, the word that is used for these prophets is prophetes. This word means one who gives forth the word of God, or one who speaks or one who proclaims the word of God before men, before people. So being a prophet and exercising prophecy is a public speaking role in the church. Just as the nation of Israel had prophets in the Old Testament who were to stand before the men and proclaim the word of God, so also the church in the first century had not only apostles, they also had prophets. And these prophets proclaimed the word of God to the people. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, explicitly states that the prophets were ranked underneath the apostles in order of importance concerning their spiritual giftedness. And when when you think of the weight of a spiritual gift, Paul said that the one that carried the greatest weight in the early church were the apostles. They had authority. They brought the word of God. They were eyewitnesses to Jesus. There was no greater gift than that. But just under the apostles was this, this gift of prophecy and these 
role of prophets in the church. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, it says the same order. It says when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent gifts down into the church. And rather than listing all of the spiritual gifts, he really talks about the, the leadership gifts and the speaking gifts. And he says he gave first some as apostles, and then right after that, some as prophets. Pretty important, these prophets. Of course, an apostle was an official eyewitness representative of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Apostles were hands selected by Jesus, and so they were very limited in terms of how many there were, and they had great authority and great respect. An apostle, even to be an apostle, had to be an actual eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus in the first century. A prophet's message from God was more limited than what the apostles had. The apostles got to live with Jesus on earth. They, they, they saw all of his miracles, you know, Peter and John and Andrew and James. All of them had great exposure and experience with Jesus Christ. The prophet didn't necessarily have all of that, but a prophet did have a message from God, but it was more limited than that of the apostles. And to some degree depended on the message of the apostles. Nevertheless, and This is important to understand. Both apostles as a group and prophets as a group spoke God's message, and they were leaders in God's church. Now, the spiritual gift that corresponds with the role of the prophet is prophecy, propheteia, prophecy. The action of a prophet is prophesying. The product is prophecy. Now, there are some people today that try to make a distinction between a prophet and somebody who prophesies. The Bible never makes that distinction. Prophesying is simply the action of the prophet. If you prophesied, guess what? You were a prophet. And if you were a prophet, you prophesied. If you didn't prophesy, you couldn't be a prophet. I'll give an example of this. David was king in Israel But he's called a prophet in Acts chapter 2, verses 30 and 31, and he's called a prophet simply because he wrote a prophecy in the Psalms. I want you also to compare sometime 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10, which speaks of the gift of prophecy, with 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28, which speaks of the role of the prophet. And you can see that The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the same passage, speaks of the prophet and prophecy as one and the same thing. They're not to be divided. In fact, Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in verses 29 and verse 31, where he shows that all of the prophets prophesy, and those who prophesy are prophets. So we don't want any confusion there. Prophets were leaders. They were leaders in the church, given to the church to help the church. We would expect there to be prophets in the early church, speaking God's word afresh to the people. Why? Because, guys, at this time, think about it, there was no New Testament. Today, we could preach from Matthew, we could preach from Revelation, Hebrews, we happen to be preaching from Acts, we could go to 1 Timothy, or we could go to 2 Thessalonians, and we have the whole corpus of New Testament revelation that's been with the church now for 20 centuries. They had maybe not even one of those writings at this point in time in early church history. All of the doctrinal truths and practical instruction that you and I get from the New Testament, they didn't have any of that. They were completely dependent upon what the apostles were being moved to say and what the prophets of God 
as God put the word of God on their tongues, were saying to the church. Their entire understanding of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, all the other blessed doctrines of the New Testament, how to be saved, the fact that I'm a sinner, many of these things, they all were dependent on the speaking role of these leaders. They were known through the apostles and underneath the apostles, these prophets, as God moved them supernaturally to speak. So this was a time where prophets were speaking prolifically. And I think to miss that historical context would be a grave interpretive mistake when one tries to understand what is prophecy, how does it work in the church, and uh, what should we expect today. That's the first action. The second action here we see in verse 28 is that prophets prophesied truth to the church. We kind of already said that, but let's make it explicit. Prophets prophesied truth to the church. Look at verse 28 again. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit. We'll stop there. So the only prophet out of this group that is named is this guy named Agabus. Now, there are only two times in the New Testament that Agabus appears in the narrative. Both times he speaks in Acts, and both times he is found prophesying. Prophet, prophesying. The term prophesied is not even used in this particular passage here by Luke, but that is exactly what is meant when Luke writes that Agabus was indicating by the Spirit. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. He indicated by speaking. So his words were from the Holy Spirit. His words were from the Holy Spirit, indicating, pointing toward truth. That is what prophets always did, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you find prophets in the narrative in the Old Testament, they're speaking, they're indicating truth by the Spirit. It's just typical language for what a prophet did. I'll give you an example, both Old Testament and New Testament, when we think about the terminology. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God spoke long ago to the fathers, talking about the patriarchs of old, and he spoke in the prophets. Get that. God spoke in the prophets. It's very important to note Luke's description of Agabus' speech. It is by the Spirit. That indicates this gift of prophecy that is in action. Prophets did not invent their messages. They were not creative. Prophets did not sit down and say, you know what, I'd like to write something poetic and interesting today. I'm going to be a little bit creative. Hmm, what should I write? That's not how the words came to them. The very words that they delivered to the church were given to them by God, often audibly. Now, this method of how God communicated is confirmed to us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It makes it clear. It says there, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. See? Spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the verse before that says, No prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation. It didn't start with some a human contemplation. They were moved to speak by the Holy Spirit. The words were given to them. 
This is what the scripture says prophecy is, Old Testament and New Testament. God speaks as he gives his very words to the prophets. Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 2 says this, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Wow, what a connection. In Matthew 22, verse 43, Jesus said, David in the Spirit called the Messiah Lord. Again, he's speaking in the Spirit, see? In Acts chapter 28, verse 25, it says, The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. So you have the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet to the fathers. Again, same terminology that we're reading here in Acts about how the Holy Spirit grabbed the hold of Agabus and the words were from him. One of the most interesting passages in the Bible that shows this connection is how, how did this work with the Holy Spirit and how did this work with the human author is actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. And it kind of gets specific about the mechanics. It, um, there Paul writes, and he's talking about his apostolic prophetic ministry where they're teaching and all of that. And he says, which things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. In other words, the words were taught to us by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So the thoughts came and God gave us the thoughts and the words, and then we spoke, and that is prophecy. Now, sometimes... As prophets prophesied truth to the church, you could imagine them standing in front of the church and there's a whole bunch of people with all kinds of needs and this person over here is, is scared and this person over there needs some correction and this person over there has another need and there's a whole congregation full of needs. As these leaders were teaching, as they were prophesying, as they were giving the message that God gave to them, they sometimes would include other aspects to their message as well. We would call it things like they gave encouraging messages. They didn't just give prophetic pronouncements. They would stand up and they would give encouraging messages. An example of this from a prophet is in Acts chapter 15 and verse 32. It indicates that along with receiving divine truth from God, prophets not only did that, but they also took the, the words that they gave to God and then they exhorted the people to listen to them and obey them and trust them. In 1 Corinthians 14, it indicates that prophecy leads to edification in the church. Those that were speaking the supernatural tongues, in other words, a foreign language in the world not known to the speaker, if they did that supernaturally in the context of the local church, nobody could understand what they were saying. So it also required a supernatural interpreter. But if someone spoke in prophecy, that was in their own known language. They could understand it. It went to the mind and they could be edified by it. And then they would even take those words and they would encourage them more with the meaning of that. We would expect this from a prophet. As they delivered God's word for the first time, they also felt the need to explain some of it. We would call that teaching, not prophecy. The Bible calls that instruction, not prophecy. And then they would urge people to be true to what the prophecy said. The Bible would call that exhortation or encouragement, not prophecy. But they would be mixed together. So you would have a prophet that is prophesying, and then he would also add his teaching, and he'd also add his exhortation. Now that has raised the question, is prophecy then the same thing as 
preaching? And the answer is no. It's not the same thing. Remember, a prophet was more than a preacher. He was more than someone who had some great insight into spiritual matter or some course that was being recommended that the church take. When someone preaches today on a Sunday, as we're doing now, that can be called teaching. That can be called instruction. And we add in exhortation or correction or encouragement, sometimes conviction. When someone stands up in a church service or a prayer meeting and they've really been thinking a lot about what God's truth has to say and proper application, and they get a great spiritual insight and they say, I have a great, I have a great insight, listen to this. Sometimes they've been calling that in certain churches prophecy. That's not prophecy. It may be a word of wisdom. It may be a word of knowledge. It may be a great application of scripture, but it's not prophecy. Prophets receive direct, infallible messages from God. It comes directly from God through a supernatural vision or a vision of the night. We call it a dream. And by the way, it's not, it's not what we might have when we have a very vivid dream. All of us have vivid dreams. That does not mean that is revelation from God. This would be a vision of the night, basically. And God spoke that way. In fact, this understanding about how God was going to speak to the prophets and get the word to them goes all the way back to the book of Numbers in the Law of Moses and chapter 12 and verse 6. There it says, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. That's special. That's not something the average Israelite got. Prophets got infallible, direct, specific words from God in a supernatural setting, fresh divine revelation. Well, guys, the same is true of the New Testament prophets. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5, it essentially says the same thing. Paul directly teaches that God, quote, revealed truth to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit because the word prophets comes after apostles in that list that shows you Paul is writing in Ephesians not about the old testament prophets but about the new testament prophets who are prophesying in the church new testament prophets Ephesians chapter 3 verse 5 God revealed truth to the prophets in the spirit so the gift of prophecy is not preaching I'm not prophesying right now. And if there's another preacher out there that is claiming that he is prophesying, now you can tell the difference. You can have zeal for prophecy, but also discernment about what is right and what is true. And also, if someone out there gives great insights into Scripture and applications, we're grateful for that, but we don't call that prophecy. Again, it may be a word of wisdom. It may be a word of knowledge. It may just be a really good counsel from a great insight to Scripture. But prophets, they delivered the word of God fresh from God, a first revealing, and all of it came to the church without any mistakes, without any errors. Another way to explain this is that all good preaching nowadays and all insightful decisions in the church really depend on prophecy. How do we get good ideas in the first place? And the answer is, we go back to what our foundation is, and that is 
the words of prophecy. Well, we could say it this way. Prophecy is foundational. Prophecy is primary. And then preaching and teaching and exhorting and counseling are all secondary. Prophecy, we'd also say, is infallible. comes right from God. But as much as I want you to listen to things I'm saying, my preaching, nobody's preaching today is infallible. The church benefits from God's prophecies through careful Bible study, careful interpretation, illumination of the Holy Spirit. Preaching, in effect, becomes the mouthpiece for prophecy for the modern church. When we're able to take this truth of the ancient prophets and make it known today with clarity and accuracy and boldness and, yes, relevance. I think it's amazing there's some particularly more seasoned preachers and pastors of the day whose mind is steeped in the word of God and in the prophecies that were given centuries ago. And they look like they look at a situation like we're going through now with a virus and they have very keen insights about what God's word has to say about this situation. God's prophecies of old still speak for today in great and relevant applications. And so uh, we... Preachers need to make it a habit of applying the prophecies of old into our world today uh, with proper application. So that's the second, second action of prophets. Now, the third action is prophets predicted the future of the church. Prophets predicted the future of the church, or even you could say for the church. Prediction. We even see that here in verse 28. The message that Agabus spoke by the Spirit, is that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. That, my friends, is a prediction. As I said, some Bible teachers these days have described prophets and prophecy almost exclusively as what we would call preaching. But that is only one thing a prophet did, preaching. Every prophet had to prove that their words were truly from God. Imagine that if just we would just accept everything that anybody said. Somebody comes into church and they say, I got new words from God, and nobody thought about that critically. Can you imagine the chaos that would incur in the church if there was no discernment like that? It's just, well, we have to accept it because he said it's from God. Well, no, that's not good enough, is it? Every prophet in the Old Testament and the New Testament had to prove their words were from God by a sign, a supernatural sign. And often that sign was, and I think this almost happened all the time, some prediction of what would happen in the future. Now, the only being in the universe who knows the future is God, right? So the proof that one is speaking for God, prophesying, is your ability to predict the future. Because if that's the realm of God and only God can tell what's going to happen in the future, nobody else can, but yet you can bring the accurate prediction of the future, now that shows others you're speaking for God. In fact, even Jesus understood this when he was teaching his disciples. He told them in John 13, uh, verse 19, this is the upper room discourse, he said, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. He said, you want proof? I'm telling you what's going to happen before it happens because only God knows the future. And I'm going to show you that this is, I am truly of God. I am he, I am the Messiah. And this is God's word. 
Really, there's a lot of evidence in the Bible that prediction was necessary for their prophecies to be accepted as from God. A simple study of the way prophetes is used in the New Testament bears this out. 137 times the word prophetes is used in the New Testament. 88 of those times it refers to Old Testament prophets. What do we know about the Old Testament prophets? Well, you read them and you know they were all engaged in predicting the future. So there you have the predictive element tied to the word immediately. In fact, of the 88 times it's used of the Old Testament prophets, 42 of those times there's an explicit reference to prophets predicting the future. In fact, it it just was often that way. Because he was a prophet, he predicted. Because he was a prophet, he said this. Prediction and prophesying are linked together over and over and over again in the biblical narrative. When the Bible speaks of prophets, it speaks of prediction. Foretelling the future was just as much a prophet's job as forthtelling the word of God to people. In fact, the foundational rules for discerning who was a true prophet and who was not to be accepted as a true prophet were laid down way back in the Law of Moses in two crucial Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, and Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting around verses 18 through verses 22. This is a time where Moses was getting old. They're about to enter into the land of Israel. Moses was not going to be going with them. In fact, he was going to die. And the children of Israel wanted to know, well, we know that Moses is a true prophet of God because he predicted the future. He performed signs. He was called by God. But when he dies and is gone, how are we going to know the next guy that shows up, whether or not he really is a prophet from you or not, God? And God gave the children of Israel three clear tests of a true prophet. And he gave it in these two foundational passages, Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. He said, first of all, they have to speak in the name of the true God, of Yahweh. Now, that's not good enough, but if they're speaking in the name of another God, discount them immediately. And then secondly, he said, everything that they said had to agree with Moses. In other words, because God spoke through Moses, if someone else comes along and says something and it contradicts Moses, we know that God is not schizophrenic. We know that God doesn't contradict himself. So you can write off, this guy is not really from God, because we know Moses was. And then third, and by the way, after Moses and there were other prophets, then that meant that someone who came along later had to agree with all of the earlier true prophets of God. And then the third test, and this is the one we're dealing with here, is 100% of what they predicted for the future had to come true. If any of those three tests were not passed, they were to be considered false prophets. They were not to be afraid of them at all. In fact, it says in Deuteronomy 18, 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing the Lord has not spoken. That seems pretty simple to me. You know, if it doesn't come true, God ain't behind it. It's not his word. Every prophet after Moses was judged that way. You could read that in the Gospels when they were all bothered about uh, what they thought were contradictions in Jesus' teaching with Moses. They're saying, wait a minute, Moses taught us this, Jesus. Now, what are you saying? They were actually trying to exercise, at least in some cases, the proper application of those tests. Um, if we're going to accept you as the Messiah, you've got to agree with Moses. 
And so they were applying that test. But if you just look through the Old Testament and you study the prophets, you see that's true. I'll give you one example, and it's really a fascinating story. I wish we had time to go through it. It's, it's, it's a funny story in some ways, too, but it's a, it's a revealing story. It's in 1 Kings chapter 22, and specifically in verse 28 of that chapter, Micaiah, the prophet, based his entire credibility as a prophet of God on whether or not wicked King Ahab was going to return from battle. Micaiah predicted against all the false prophets that Ahab was going to die in battle. And all the false prophets were saying, no, you're going to be victorious and all of that. And Micaiah then actually said to the king, if you return from the battle, then the Lord has not spoken by me. And of course, you know the story. I hope you know the story that Ahab was a little worried about that, and he dressed up not as the king. He got in a different chariot to make sure no one would pursue him and cut him down. And guess what? A stray arrow hit somewhere in a chink in his armor, and guy bled out and died. Well, when we get to the New Testament and John the Baptist, where he's making predictions right away about the coming of the Messiah, and and he's called a prophet, and we start learning of the gift of prophecy in the church, it is exactly the same thing as the Old Testament. For example, all of the apostles, I don't know if you knew this, but all of the apostles were also prophets because they were all involved in receiving direct revelation from God and predicting the future. And they all did predict the future accurately. Just look at their writings. And then when we have only two active examples of a message given by prophets in the New Testament church, both times the prophet is active, we find him doing what? Predicting the future. And they're both by Agabus, and they're both in the book of Acts. Acts 11, 27 through 30, right here, what we're studying, and Acts 21, verses 10 and 11. Both he predicted accurately the future. He predicted a famine. It came true. He predicted Paul's binding and imprisonment. That also came true. All of this is so clear from the Bible, so clear. Unfortunately, some teachers have muddied the waters on this in the present days, and this has caused a lot of unnecessary confusion. For example, some have tried to teach that New Testament prophecy is different than Old Testament prophecy, and that New Testament prophecy is allowed to have mistakes in it. However, when you see that the same language is being used, the same example of the prophets is being used, the same outcomes, the same explanations of how the speech is going on, they're presented the same way in the New and the Old Testament, it's hard to find any difference or distinction at all. And certainly these Jews would not have understood understood these prophets and acts any differently than the Old Testament prophets. Others have muddied the waters by asserting that Agabus actually did make a big boo-boo in his second prophecy about Paul's binding in Jerusalem. But you go ahead and read it. To any reasonable reading, everything he said came to pass. Agabus was correct both times. In fact, the apostle Paul even testified that Agabus was correct in Acts chapter 28 and verse 17. Paul appealed to Agabus' prophecy to show that Though he had done no wrong in Jerusalem, he was bound and imprisoned. And the book of Acts says that Agabus spoke what he spoke by the Holy Spirit. Acts 21, verse 11. So unless you want to call the Holy Spirit a liar, you really need to accept his prophecy as true. And then there's more muddying of the waters concerning prophecy these days. 
someone would say, wait a minute, isn't the fact that we are told in the church to judge prophecies when they come out of people's mouths. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verses 29 through 32 says that. Since we're supposed to judge these prophecies, doesn't that kind of hint that some of these prophecies may have errors in them? 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 29 says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. People say, ah, that shows there was an error. Well, of course there could be an error in something that was called a prophecy because false prophets prophesy error. The point of the rule there in 1 Corinthians 14, 29 was not to find an error in a true prophecy, but to weed out the true from the false. In fact, that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 14.32, where it adds, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. You know, not only in the church, but in Israel, everybody had to make sure the person that was speaking for God or claiming to speak for God was really presenting the truth and not false prophecies. That is hardly evidence for true prophecies having mistakes. And then even further, to muddy the waters further, there are those that claim that their strong impressions from the Holy Spirit inside of them and their minds, that that is from God. And when they voice those impressions to the church, they actually say that they are prophesying in the church today. Brothers and sisters, I know many of those that would say that intend well, but again, we have to have more than enthusiasm for the Holy Spirit. We have to get things right and have good discernment. Strong impressions from the Holy Spirit is something every spirit-filled man and woman of God is going to have. We all get them. I get them. You get them. I can tell you often God's word burns within us and it so brightens our understanding and it even points sometimes to such clear wisdom and application. We feel compelled to do that. That is not infallible revelation from God and so the words that come out are not prophecy. What some people call today prophecies are just strong impressions from God, and we thank God for strong impressions. God can guide us by giving us these impressions. Sometimes God grips us with a thought. Sometimes God makes something really clear to someone else in the church to help the church out, but they are not infallible, and they must always be subject to the prophetic word of God. In fact, just from a wisdom perspective, you should never act on your impressions alone, no matter how strong. Even here, we can see the difference between an impression and a prophecy. Look at how the church responded to Agabus's prophecy. We could see that the prophet's prediction of the famine was weighted much more heavily. Agabus's prophecy was trusted to meet the church's need. Verse 29, they took action in obedience to this prophecy. Look again at verses 29 and 30. and says, And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Wow, they took the prophet's prediction as truth, so much so they put their money where their mouth was. Predictive prophecy benefited the early church here, because it prepared them to face the future and to meet 
the financial needs during this crisis time of a famine. And really, this is not a message about giving, but what an example of their giving in the midst of a famine, in the midst of a natural disaster. Do you see that they didn't shrivel up and die in their faith? They continued to give. It says they gave proportionately, and that's still a great principle for financial giving, determining ahead of time what percentage you're going to give and stick with it. Don't lower your percentage, but trust in God. Some have more. If you give a certain percentage, that ends up being more. But the point is the percentage that you're giving proportionate to what you're able to give. They gave with that principle. It also says they gave purposefully. That means they determined to do it. They were committed to giving. Unfortunately, too, people think, too many people think about giving just when someone asks for giving or when the offering plate happens to come across their lap. But we ought to be always thinking about who we are as members in the church and what the needs are and how to keep the church going during times of crisis and how to meet the needs of people. And so we, we give in a determined and a proportionate and hopefully also in a generous manner. And so these disciples set a great example here. We even learn principles of how they handled the money. They decided to put that money in charge of two very trustworthy leaders who would guard that money as the Lord's money. And so we see prophecy predicting the future and benefiting the church. Now we come to the fourth and the final action here. And it's really, we're going from this text of scripture and we're broadening out and looking at just a couple of verses throughout the New Testament. And the fourth action is this, that prophets formed the foundation for the church of Jesus. Prophets formed the foundation for the church of Jesus. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 19 and 20 directly states this. This is not an interpretive thing. This is the very picture that the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, presents for the role of apostles and prophets. It pictures the church as a spiritual building. Well, how does a building get built? It starts with a cornerstone. That's laid down first because it gives the dimensions of how this structure is going to be laid out. Who's the cornerstone? The answer is Jesus Christ, his life and his, his teaching. He is that cornerstone. It gets laid only once and gets laid only at the beginning. And then it speaks of the, the foundation of this superstructure is the apostles of Jesus and the New Testament prophets. Again, because the word prophets follows apostles, we know it's not talking about the Old Testament prophets, but the New Testament prophets. These A.D. prophets are being spoken of as laying the foundation for the church of Jesus. Now, I am not a builder. <laughs> you shouldn't ask me anything about how to construct things like that. But I do know one thing. Foundations get laid only once. And then the foundation serves as what everything else is going to be built on after that. Prophets then and apostles are not meant to form the walls of the church as it grows story to story through the century. Prophets and apostles are not going to be the dome of the church at the end. The prophets and the apostles had to be there at the very beginning as the foundation. The first century of the Christian church, beloved, was foundational. I don't know how any reader of the New Testament can miss that fact. It was meant to be events that happened that were never meant to be repeated. Everything we read about it tells us these are not repeatable events. Jesus was born into the world just once. Does, that, does he need to come back and do that again? No. 
Then he did his work. He died on the cross. Does that need to be repeated? No. Then he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He was seated in heaven. And then from there, he sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Again, a one-time event to usher in the new covenant and to form his church. And then the apostles and the prophets spoke all of the teaching, all of the New New Testament revelation about Christ. It was all laid down for the church once at the beginning. And so the New Testament itself makes it clear that there were two huge changes that happened at the end of the New Testament, at the end of the first century. And everybody has to admit these changes. The first huge change that happened at the end of the New Testament is that the New Testament was completed. The truth about Jesus was written down in all of its fullness, all of its beautiful fullness. There were no new revelations about Jesus and his will and what the church was supposed to be doing after the book of Revelation was closed. As Jude describes it in Jude verse 3, the truth of the gospel was once for all delivered to the church, to the saints. Now the second huge thing that happened there at the close of the first century was that the apostles who were appointed by Jesus Christ firsthand as eyewitnesses of his bodily resurrection ceased to be in the church. There is no debating this. Anyone who claims to be an apostle beyond the first century has to mean it in some very different way than the Bible in the New Testament means it. There can't possibly be any meaningful eyewitness testimony to the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth in Palestine beyond even the first half of the first century. Paul testified in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 through 8 that he was the very last apostle to witness the resurrected Lord, and therefore he was the last apostle. And so the Bible directly teaches that this foundational gift of apostleship ceased and had to cease. So unless you believe that Jesus is being raised from the dead today and he needs new eyewitnesses of his bodily resurrection today, you have already agreed that the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of apostleship, is not only no longer given, it can't be given, doesn't need to be given. What we today in the church and in the previous centuries here, what we need to do when we think about these two foundational truths. What do we think about when we think, okay, the New Testament is fully written, it's completed, and the gift of apostleship served its purpose, laid the foundation for the church. The question is beyond beyond that first century, into the second and the third, and all the way to the 21st century, what is our connection to prophecy? What is our view of prophecy? How does prophecy then help us? And the answer is, it is our foundation. You don't add to a foundation another foundation. You simply continue to build the church upon the foundation. There can only be prophets in the church today if God is still revealing new truth he forgot to reveal in the first century and predicting the future infallibly through people outside of the Bible. Beloved people may call themselves prophets today and they may claim to be prophesying, and they may say they have the gift of prophecy, 
But just as with the apostles, they don't meet the biblical criteria of a New Testament prophet. There is no need for prophets in the church today when we have the product of the prophets, the perfect product of the prophets in our hands to take as the foundation. We have more insight because we have all of it collected together and we still have the Holy Spirit as our teacher. And there it is. In fact, I want to emphasize this. There's no need for prophets today because we would have to improve upon the message that was given in that foundational stage of the church. And again, going back to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, it says there that God spoke through Jesus Christ in the end times. And it says it that way, in such a way that Jesus is God's final message to man. Jesus is God's perfect message to man. You don't get a a better message and a clearer picture of God than Jesus Christ. When God spoke through his son, that was his final message. You don't improve upon that. You don't add to that. You don't say, we need more prophecy. The finality of God's speech in his perfect son through his chosen apostles and prophets closes the door on any new revelation. Once Jesus was revealed, there's nothing else for God to say until his son breaks the clouds again and comes at his second coming. In Revelation chapter 22, the closing chapter of the Bible, it closes prophecy. And in verse 18, it explicitly says, don't add to this. Honestly, if there is a believer in churches and they are seeking new revelations from God because they think they're just needed, it really reveals how little they understand of the prophecies that have already been given to the church. These full, perfect prophecies and truth, the fullness of the revelation that is given, if you understood it and studied it, you would realize it doesn't need to be added to. This is the completed book of God's prophecies. And brothers, he's not writing any sequel. (laughs) It's done. We have the fullness of revelation. And God wants us to build our lives, our hope, our churches, and everything we do on the truth of this message. Preach it, study it, apply it, found your life on it. That's our relationship to the prophecies. They are foundational to every local church and to the church universal. This is the book the Holy Spirit wrote through men of God. He spoke by the prophets. And I thank God that we have the truth of the prophets with us today. Father, thank you that you are the living God of the prophets and that your word still speaks today with life and with vigor. Help our people to understand the treasure they already have. And as we go forth to live our life, remember this prophetic foundation. Remember the predictive nature of this book, even for our future as well. Help us to remember the leading role of prophecy in the church and grant us strength and faith to live by it. Pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.